Once again, the New Testament lesson comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 32, and that is found on page 939. Brothers and sisters, this is the Holy Word of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Well, they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The Old Testament from which our sermon comes is Psalm 19, and that is found on page 456 of your Pew Bibles. Once again, that is page 456. We hear God's word from Psalm 19, all verses. Brothers and sisters, again, this is the holy word of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and a sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. 
Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word of God so far, let us pray that God will bless the preaching of it. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to receive your word this morning. Help us to focus on it, to hear it clearly. Lord, may we hear the law convicting us of sin and also the gospel convicting us of eternal life in Christ alone. May you be honored and glorified in this word. And may your people be edified. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Congregation of Christ and friends, isn't it true that there are many things in this life that appear on the surface to be very simple and easy to understand? But once you look at them a bit more, you understand that they are really much more complex than you ever thought and even sometimes obscure. I think a great example is, is observing children learning math. Now, at first they learn their numbers, they learn to add and to subtract, they get to multiplication, they make it by division, and they think at some point that math really isn't that bad. They have to do it, but they can figure it out and get past it. But then all of a sudden, they realize there's this thing called algebra and geometry and even calculus, and all of a sudden this, this, this thing they thought was so easy to understand and something they could grasp is something way beyond their reach and almost impossible. They reason, how could anybody ever understand algebra? I asked myself the same question. Well, so it is with the knowledge of God in the natural world. You think you know who God is and you think you understand what He demands by simple, simple observation of the way the world is say, a system of ethics. But once you begin to search more deeply, perhaps observing the many different world religions and their take on God, you see that it is much more difficult than you ever imagined. And further, as you think about God and meditate upon His power and His right to judge all people for their sin, all of a sudden, God becomes much more obscure and difficult to understand and even frightening. Well, we'll argue in the sermon that we can only know God in the most general sense in the creation. That is, we can understand that there is a God, that He is powerful, that He is glorious, and also that He is a judge. Therefore, we'll understand the necessity of the Word of God, that is, the Bible, to make sense of this God. 
and especially how the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ in his explanation, as it were, of God himself. So first we'll understand how the creation displays the glory of God and the power of God, but not his nature, that is, his mercy and so on. Second, we'll understand how the law makes sense of God. And third, we'll understand how Christ makes sense of God and his law. So our first point is that in the creation, in the natural world, we can understand that there is a God and that he is Glorious. In fact, this is what the psalmist says quite plainly, doesn't he? He says, The heavens at day and night declare or reveal God's glory or his majesty. And the psalmist focuses on one of the most magnificent parts of the creation, the heavens and how they are vast and mysterious. And so the sky and sun during the day and the moon and the stars at night are far off, overwhelming and beyond us. And again, as we think about children, uh, they're marvelous to us because they see things in a light uh, that often we don't. We become a sort of a, a stodgy and a narrow as we grow older, but children are alive to the marvelous aspects of this world. And the stars are one of those things that they, they marvel at. And Daddy, Mommy, look at all the stars and, how, stars and how brilliant they are. So it says the psalmist says in Psalm 8, when he looks at the heavens, the work of God's fingers, the moon and the stars which he has set in place, what is man that God is mindful of him and the son of man that he cares for him? Indeed, uh, who are you in view of God's glory seen in the creation? You must confess that you are weak creatures that must do his bidding, and you must do his bidding, bidding because he is glorious, that is, God is glorious, and you know he is glorious from observing the creation. And notice that the sun is a particular example of this marvelous creation that inspires awe. <clears throat> so notice second part of verse 4. The psalmist says, In them, that is the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It rises from one end of the heavens, making its circuit to the other, and nothing is hidden from his heat. Well, the sun has inspired awe for generations among people who are so impressed with the sun that they worshipped it. In fact, according to one scholar, there is an ancient pagan myth in which the sun god at night rests in the mythical sea in the arms of his beloved and at dawn emerges from his bridal chamber with youthful vigor and radiant splendor. A fascinating parallel to what the psalmist says here. The sun rises, it comes out from its bridal chamber. Another scholar notes that there is an ancient Sumerian hymn that celebrates the sun god as a hero that goes out. And notice here, the psalmist says the sun is like a strong man or a hero. Then finally, the Babylonians named their sun god Shamash and the Hebrew word for sun here is Shemesh. The Babylonians considered Shemesh to be the highest judge who has insight into all the deeds of men. Likewise, according to the psalm, nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun, that is, the sight 
of the Son as if it were a judge. Well, it appears clearly that the psalmist here is drawing from ancient pagan tradition as he speaks about the Son. But his purpose, you see, is a polemic or an argument against worshipping the Son. The scriptures are saying here that the Son doesn't deserve praise and glory any more than the moon at night and the stars at night do. The Son, according to the psalmist, is set in a tent, not set in a palace. So you see, what the psalmist is doing here is speaking into his context that all you people confuse the creation with the Creator. Yes, the Son is marvelous. But the Son is not God. The Son doesn't deserve praise and glory. You don't fall down before the Son. No, you fall down before God. And so, the psalmist is not only pointing out the glory of God in his creation, but he's also pointing out your sin. Your natural tendency is to worship, just like the ancients, the things in the creation rather than the one who created all things. And this is Paul's point in Romans chapter 1, isn't it? He's saying, what's wrong with you people? You're, 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 create, you're worshiping uh, snakes and, and uh, wood and stone and the sun. God created all these things. They're not God. God is invisible. You can't see Him. The creation, you see, just reflects God. Therefore, God's glory is clear from the creation, but because of your sin, you obscure His glory. But also the creation itself is insufficient to tell you who God is in the first place. Search all you want, but you won't find the nature of God within the creation. So notice in verses 3 and 4, literally it says, There is no speech and there are no words, their voice is not heard. That is a proper translation. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their voice or sound goes throughout all the earth and their speech to the ends of the world. That is, there is a speech and knowledge, yet there is not a speech and knowledge. And so this is a poetic way of saying that the knowledge and glory of God is proclaimed and revealed to people, but in a way that is impossible to fully understand. I think an appropriate parallel would be uh, one listening to a great symphony. Uh, But this person doesn't understand music. They can be impressed by the sounds. They can even be moved by the sounds of this tremendous piece of music. But they will never understand the piece unless they are educated about music. They will never understand the complexity, uh, the structure of the music, and thereby be really and truly moved by it and understand it. Well, in the same way, all people who know nothing about Yahweh, the God of Israel, can appreciate his creation for its beauty, to be sure, but people can know nothing of the nature of salvation, say, in Christ alone without the Bible. And so again, Paul's words in Romans chapter 1 are very instructive. The wrath of God, Paul says, is being poured out on all mankind because they suppress the truth of God's existence through their own unrighteousness. They're like these uneducated people listening to the symphony saying, Oh, I've heard better things, or I wish to do something else. And so they, 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 they notice God and the creation, but they suppress His existence, His truth, His majesty, all of these things. The creation 
it's not only insufficient to tell you about God, but also you take any revelation about God in the creation and obscure it through your sin. So you see, brothers and sisters, that the only corrective to this situation is hearing God's law, by which the psalmist means here the Word of God, the Bible. As a son gives life to the creation, so does God's Word give life to all men. And that is a transition to the second part of the psalm. The son is all-encompassing in the creation, to be sure, and so is the Word of God in terms of people listening to it. And so the law of the Lord, Lord here meaning Yahweh, God's covenant name, is not just the commands of God, but it is the law, the testimonies, precepts, commands, fear, or rules and judgments of the Lord. And so you see, the psalmist uses these words to describe the different aspects, you see, of the scriptures. And the shift to the word of God at this point is a shift from the general revelation of God in nature to the special revelation of God in the scriptures. Where there can be confusion and frustration from seeing and hearing the glory of God in the creation now and not understanding it, through the word of God there can be clarity and satisfaction in knowing who God is. It takes the word of God to explain God. Because the scriptures are a revelation of God, they will both reveal who God is and what he demands of people. And in this way, the law, you see, or the scriptures, makes sense of God. So the, Lord of the, uh, the law of the Lord, the psalmist says, is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, clean, true, and righteous altogether. And it is this way, you see, because uh, the law is an extension of God's nature. God himself is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and righteous altogether. That is, he possesses all of these attributes without absolute perfection. He is the essence of goodness. And so as God is perfect, pure, righteous, so must people be perfect, pure, and righteous. Because all people are made in God's moral image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. To be pure and righteous is a delightful thing. It's not an onerous thing. It's not a weird thing. It feels weird in this world today. But it is a good thing, a delightful thing. This is exactly why the psalmist says the law revives the soul. It is refreshing to follow after God according to his will. You were created to know him and to love him, not to disobey him. And so, you see, all the rest of the descriptions make sense. The simple person will be wise as he follow, follows God's word. There is a great utility, there's a great benefit to following his law. Further, if God is really perfect, and if following his word leads to him, then it follows that the word of God is the most precious and valuable thing that you could imagine. It's more precious than gold, more precious than silver, than stocks, real estate, anything you can think of. And it is sweeter than honey. The problem is, however... Like you obscure the knowledge and glory of God in the creation, so you do the same thing with God's word. You hear God's word calling you to obey him, and that there is great reward in doing so, but you can't do it, and you really don't care to do it. This is exactly why the psalmist mentions the fact of human error or sin 
in verse 12 and goes on to ask for protection from sinful ways. And so you see the confession matches the confession in verse 3. There is a revelation of God in nature, but it is not heard. Why? Not only is it insufficient to know God in a saving way, but sin obscures this revelation. And so this argues finally for Jesus Christ as the one who truly makes sense of God and His law or His word. Only Jesus can do that. So notice the, um, the progression of logic here in the psalm. First, the creation tells you that there is a glorious God that exists and He is powerful. He is majestic and He has the right to judge. Then second, the law of God, that is the word, tells you about this God and what He demands. What is that? To walk humbly with your God. To follow Him. That wisdom, life, real joy and reward is found in His word. Not in the things that you think are so great, but in His word. But you can't obey God perfectly And again, you really don't care all that much anyway. And if you can't obey God perfectly, you will perish under the eternal anger of God forever in hell. That is what God says in His Word. And that's why Paul is so forceful in his words in Romans chapter 1. If you are not perfectly obedient to every part of His Word, you will suffer. So what gives? Why is the psalmist saying that there's such great delight in following his word? I mean, why is he saying that there's great reward in following it? Why does he say that you must follow it perfectly if you can't? Well, the solution is found in the psalmist's confession that if the Lord keeps him from sin, then he will be blameless. He speaks about God's law and how wonderful it is and immediately goes to the fact of his own sin. And this is married to the confession that the Lord, Yahweh, is his rock and redeemer. The Lord as redeemer, that is Jesus Christ, will help those who have broken God's law. He helps you who have broken God's law by keeping the law himself in which there is great reward. Therefore, you will be blessed, you will be happy in other words, and may enjoy all the benefits of following the law that the psalmist talks about here through Jesus Christ and His obedience. So the psalmist talks about Christ's obedience ultimately. And this fact comes from the Old Testament principle of enjoying eternal life and happiness as it was rooted in the obedience of another. And a great example of this is found in Genesis chapter 26. Here Isaac and Rebekah are on their way south to Gerar because there is a famine in the land. And God speaks to them and tells them to stay where they are in Gerar and not to go to Egypt. Then he tells them that their offspring or their children will be multiplied and that they will be blessed in the promised land. Why? Because Isaac and Rebekah were so good and so handsome and so great and so chosen? No. It says, because Abraham was obedient in him, or rather to him. They are getting all the blessings in the land because of Abraham's obedience, God says. But again, you have to ask, well, how does that work? I mean, what about Isaac and Rebekah? I mean, doesn't it matter what they do? Well, of course it does. But God is saying here 
their blessings, the reward, comes through Abraham's obedience. And so that is what God has seemed to be clear to Isaac and Rebekah. Because Abraham was obedient to the law, they will be blessed. All the good things that they will get is because of Abraham's obedience. But it is important to understand that Abraham's obedience was just a model of Christ's obedience. His obedience was not perfect, to be sure. There are many examples of that, very clear examples. But his obedience pointed to another's obedience, that is, Jesus Christ. Therefore, in the same way as the promised land was given to Abraham's children because of another's obedience, Abraham's obedience so is heaven given to you because of Christ's perfect obedience to the law of God. I mean, why are there so many instances in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, that Christ was obedient? He was faithful to the Father. His food was what? To do His will. To do the law. He was perfect in every way. Was that just just because it was a good idea? No, it's because He was doing this in your place. And so you see the word because in Genesis 26.5 is the same exact word found in, in Psalm 19.11 that is translated reward. The same idea of reward for obedience to the law in Genesis 26 is found in this psalm. In keeping the law, there is great reward. But because the psalmist confesses sin in not keeping the law perfectly, the weight and expectation of law doing falls on the Lord, the rock and redeemer. That is why the psalmist ends the psalm the way he does. His own hope, his own Glory, his own satisfaction and happiness does not rest on his law doing. That's why he confesses his sin. It rests on the Lord's law doing. Ultimately, Christ. The creation then tells you that there is a God who is perfect. He's a judge condemning those who don't follow him. And the law of God tells you that you can't obey the law perfectly. Therefore, the only way to have peace with God and to live for Him is to rest in Christ, the Rock and Redeemer. In conclusion, the wrath of God, which is what mankind finds in the creation, is set in contrast to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 1. Listen to the first part. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then he contrasts that gospel to uh, the law and the condemnation of the law of God in the rest of Romans uh, chapter 1 that we heard. God condemning people for not following the law. But you see, it begins with the gospel here, and Paul is making it clear that you're all lawbreakers. You've never been uh, faithful to God in the perfect sense ever, neither have I. But the hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the word of Christ, in it is the righteousness of God. That is a righteousness that is alien to you. It's not your righteousness, it's not your walking, your doing, your striving. 
It's Christ's striving and work. That is the point of the Bible. So brothers and sisters, uh, the, the creation itself tells you there is a God who is a judge. The scriptures affirm that, but the scriptures you see tell you and explain this God that he is a God who is long-suffering, who is merciful, who is gracious in Jesus Christ alone. You are justified by his grace, not your grace, that is received by faith alone. And so you stand before him this morning because you are righteous, because of Christ's righteousness. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.